This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I am your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on July 28th, 2021. And our guest today is Gerald Griggs, who's based in Atlanta. Gerald is a civil rights attorney, but also handles criminal law as well. Gerald has been with us before, but right now I know that you're working on a very high profile case. You are representing some of the victims and families who are who were allegedly abused by singer R. Kelly. Gerald, welcome back to the program. How are you? I'm doing great, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. Gerald, can you give us a quick headline on what's going on with the R. Kelly case? Cases. Well, as, you, as you know, he's facing multiple cases around the country, and currently the um, case in New York is set to go to trial with jury selection on August the 9th. The judge did delay the actual start of the trial to later on in August, but jury selection will start August the 9th. So many of my clients and many of their family members are eagerly awaiting their day in court where they can um, make their formal allegations in front of a jury. And then Mr. Kelly can defend himself and then we can get to the bottom of what actually happened and get justice in these cases. So we're we're excited. Uh, It's been a long time coming to get to this point. And we're hopeful uh, of the case that will be uh, presented against Mr. Kelly. All right. Thank you, Gerald. And of course, we hope that you will continue to keep us updated here and you'll come back as the the trials continue because there are a lot of people interested in what's going on in this case. Yes, I will. All right. So, Gerald, these are the cases that we're looking at this week. Uh, One of them is happening in your backyard. (laughs) So I'll be very curious as what you have to say about this. So here are the two cases. An aspiring rapper has been charged with 15 criminal counts in connection to a triple murder at a Georgia golf course. But first, a Pennsylvania man has pleaded guilty to kidnapping and murdering a young Amish teenager. On July 22nd, 35-year-old Justo Smoker pleaded guilty in court to third-degree murder, 
kidnapping, abuse of a, of a corpse, two counts of tampering with evidence, and possession of an instrument of crime in connection with the killing of an 18-year-old Amish teenager. Her name is Linda Stoltzfus. This is a horrible, horrible case. And, and what came out of this, Gerald, is that witnesses had told police because, you know, she had been missing for some time and they, they actually had to negotiate, authorities had to negotiate with this man to find out where her body was buried, which is, you know, when we get into the details of it, Gerald, we've had some cases where some families have absolutely refused to negotiate with the killer or alleged killer. Yes, and it, this is a very disturbing case. I mean, anytime that you have to negotiate to get information about your loved one, it's very disturbing. Um, I, I'm happy that you know they've gotten some semblance of justice, but nothing could bring back um, their loved one. And so my heart goes out to them. But the fact that they had to negotiate is just very, very, very troubling. Um, an individual... Uh, with that type of um, control, that type of mental um, power over somebody. That should never happen in our criminal justice system. But I am happy that they were able to get some semblance of justice. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, some families are willing to do it, obviously, with prosecutors and the judge always overseeing everything and coordinating everything. But some families refuse. Their feeling is that, you know what, our loved one is gone and there's no way that we're going to accept a lesser charge for this killer. So it's very interesting that this family felt very, very strongly that they needed to have their Linda back. They needed to have a proper burial. And therefore, they agreed to the lesser charges and this pattern of negotiation that, that took place over some time. So let's get into the details of the case here. So Justo has just been sentenced to 35 years and a half to 71 years behind bars as part of this plea deal that he entered into with prosecutors in the Lancaster County DA's office. Now, according to WGAL, Justo said, quote, this is what he said in court, I know Linda was a light. Because of me, the world is dimmer. All I can say is I'm sorry. And her family chose not to be in court to listen to this. And I can't blame them. I, yeah, I, I, mean I yeah, I mean, that's understandable. I mean, the, the pain that you're going through when you lose a loved one uh, and then to lose them in such horrific fashion, you can understand them not wanting to be there and then having to negotiate um, to get uh, the essential facts so you can give a proper burial so that you can have some semblance of closure. Um, I think that they wanted to have their Linda back, as they said, uh, and they didn't need to hear um, from the killer. He's a killer now because he's he's admitted to it. Um, but it's just it's it's horrible to think that in order to get closure, you had to trade with this individual. And I do understand plea negotiation happens all the time. But most of the time, you don't have to trade to get information where a body is located. Um, but I guess, you know, it probably death was on the table or some serious sentence. Uh, multiple life sentences were probably on the table. So this is the best thing to do uh, for the defendant. But for the victim's family, it, it took a lot. And, and I guess it's that process of healing uh, for them to come to grips with um, having to give some amount of leniency just to get that closure. Yeah. In fact, um, he then told the authorities how he did it in addition to where Linda was buried. So 
Justo told authorities that he approached Linda from behind. He choked her with his arm under her neck and then with shoelaces until she was no longer breathing. And then prosecutor Todd Brown said in court last Friday, he then stabbed Linda in the neck one more time just to make sure she was dead. It's gruesome. Very gruesome. No family should have to go through hearing those type of facts, um, you know, just to get closure. Um, It was brutal. She was already dead. And then you just stab her one more time for good measure. Uh, That's just horrific. Um, But, you know, the good thing about it is they now have closure. They know, you know, where she is and where they can put her body to rest. And they know she's no longer in any pain. But it was horrific just to listen to that uh, in court. So here's the background. Linda disappeared on Father's Day of June 21st, 2020. She was walking home from church and she disappeared. Ten months after she went missing, that is when her remains were found in a rural area in Lancaster. This is, of course, because the killer led police there. According to the DA, a total of 15,000 hours were spent searching for her. They also had 2,000 searchers on the ground, and the area was huge, 10,000 acres, because where the Amish live here in Lancaster, um, Pennsylvania, is is very rural. Detectives say that, you know, because she had just vanished, detectives say that they looked at videos from neighboring homes and businesses, and that security video actually showed the abduction, and they showed Justo committing it to the level that they could identify a car that looked similar to his car. It was um, a, a red vehicle that had a very distinctive sticker on the back. I guess surveillance cameras can get really, really close. And the sticker on the back of the trunk had the letters LCM. So between the description of the red Kia and then the sticker, they found the car parked again in an even more rural area. And they started searching the area behind where the car was. And then they found clothing that belonged to Linda. They found her bra and her stockings, according to police, but no sign of Linda. So then prosecutors say that they checked the DNA of the clothing that they found. And it also linked back to Justo. And the reason that's important is because he's a convicted felon. So therefore, all his DNA would be in the system. Is, is, would that be accurate, Gerald? That's right. You know, typically when you serve a sentence in prison, they do take a sample because you have less, um, less Fourth Amendment rights because you've been convicted. So they put it in a database, usually it's called CODIS. Uh, and that way, if they have a match later on down the road, uh, they have a known sample of certain group of people who have already violated the law so they can easily match it up for any other crime. And witnesses had told police that they had seen this same man lurking in that area where Linda disappeared, looking at Amish girls, like stalking them the night and the day before Linda was abducted. Now, of course, that, you know, that helps to paint a picture when you go towards prosecution, I believe, right? Because all these little pieces add up. At the moment, I mean, I don't know, would would the girls have called police to say, hey, there's a creepy guy watching? It's possible, right? It's possible. I don't know whether that would have prevented the abduction, though. So about 
it probably wouldn't have been enough information. I mean, basically, it'd probably be a loitering charge, which would be a misdemeanor. You wouldn't be able to foresee uh, the level of violence that happened in, in her case. Uh, but it would have been a clue. It would have been a clue that they could have followed up on. But we don't know if anybody made any reports that an individual uh, was stalking or or lurking or, or looming or loitering uh, for some type of illicit purpose. Yeah, it appears that this information came came forward to police after she disappeared because then the other girls realized, hey, wait a minute, maybe we know something, maybe we saw something because this this fits um, where Linda was last seen. So three weeks later, after Linda's disappearance on July 11th of 2020, the Lancaster District Attorney's Office announces an arrest in the case. They say that 34-year-old Justo Smoker of Paradise was taken into custody. Now, as I said, Justo Smoker is a convicted felon. He was on parole, had been on parole for about a year and a half at this point before the murder. And he had previously pleaded guilty to multiple armed robberies and burglary charges. And get this, Gerald, most of those crimes were committed against Amish people. Mm, So he had an MO. And you you could tell from his record that he was escalating uh, now, again, you can't you can't put all convicted felons in, in a box. You know, some of them are able to be rehabilitated. Uh, but in this particular case, it seems as though his crimes were getting more and more heinous and more and more targeted. It certainly looks that way. So last summer, this is after he's been arrested. Justo was ordered to stand trial on the kidnapping and false imprisonment charges because, again, they had not found her body yet. Uh, I think they were moving toward murder anyway, and we have seen that more and more prosecutors are willing to try cases without a body. Uh, I would say probably like 10 years ago, there was a lot more of a, of a reluctance to do that, but that seems to be a change that we're experiencing. So now we're going to fast forward to this last April here in 2021. Prosecutors agree to a plea deal. This is how long this took. Agree to a plea deal, but there is one condition. He must reveal where Linda is. As we discussed previously, you know, the family was in favor of this. So as part of the deal, Justo would plead guilty to third degree murder and other related charges. So these are all the lesser charges. And then finally, about two, three weeks later, Linda's remains are found. Justo had buried her in this tree line area along railroad tracks behind where he worked. Justo told detectives that he decided to move Linda's body from the first site because he realized that it was too close to where she lived. So this is really interesting because not only is he, has he revealed the manner of death and how he killed her, but I mean, he went so far as to bury her pull her out of the ground and rebury her while the search is going on. Where was the yeah, remorse it, then? There was no remorse. And it also shows that he had been following her for a sustained amount of time because he knew exactly where she lived and that he needed to move the body. He knew that people were, were drawing closer and closer to discovering her. So it's definitely a consciousness of guilt and an attempt to conceal it. Uh, and it just shows the lack of, of, of remorse, the lack of compassion and caring uh, for this young lady who had already killed uh, to move her body again to try to conceal it. 
So he ended up moving her to property owned by Amtrak. And what's interesting is, I mean, it's not like he was thinking that clearly. He moves her away from her home, but behind where he works. So, I mean, another stupid move. Yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, defendants and individuals that have committed heinous crimes don't always think these things through. I mean, when you're moving her from where she, um, close to where she resided to a place closer to you and, and would point to you, that doesn't always help your case, which is probably the reason why he agreed uh, to this lesser uh, uh, charge, because he knew at some point they were going to start searching areas uh, associated with him and it would probably turn up the body. And, and once the body uh, is present, there's no more leverage to negotiate with. That's true. And that's what he was using, which makes the whole thing that much more twisted and sick and violent. And ugh, it just turns my stomach. Now, according to a news release, Linda's body was found wrapped in plastic that had been secured with duct tape. Her body was clothed. Her hands and feet were tied together with multiple bindings. A thin rope connected each of the bindings together and then was looped around her neck. Her sash and her apron were wrapped tightly around her face and her mouth was covered with duct tape. Very, and very violent. Very violent. And I'm not, I'm not going over the details of it to be gruesome, but it's to understand the level of violence of what this woman endured. And, and it shows the amazing strength and grace of the family to negotiate with this heinous human being just to get their daughter back. Yeah. And, and I don't think they knew or know those particular facts. I'm sure they didn't want to know. Uh, but again, it shows the heinous nature of this crime. It shows the premeditation of this crime. It shows the wanton disregard for human life to, to bind her like that and then to move her and then to cover it up again, this individual wanted to inflict as much pain and destruction to this young lady and ultimately to her family as he could. And so he, he's lucky um, that they had the grace and mercy and they didn't know these facts. Because I'm sure as a, as a parent hearing these type of facts, we may have to go back on that negotiation. And it's interesting. He said in court, he actually said to, to, to the judge and everyone, not only did he apologize, but he said, you know, I'm really sorry because I'm better than that. And I thought to myself when I read that, no, you are not better than that. No, you are not. How dare you? That to me was just like another insult. <laughs> like, I know I'm better than that. You know that I have failed. Please. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, yeah. sometimes when you're you're in court, um, your lawyers told you what to say, um, but you know there's nothing you can say in a case like this. What what you tell your client at that point is, um, you know, grace and mercy have gotten you past the point where you would probably spend prolonged life sentences. You know, three, four, and five life sentences, like the day spa shooter just got here in Georgia, four life sentences. Case like this is easy. Two life sentences easy for those type of facts. Yeah. So the autopsy did reveal that Linda died of asphyxiation as a result of strangulation and that the stab wound to the neck actually did contribute to her death. 
And as we said, you know, Justo had already been out on parole. So what's interesting here is that the way Pennsylvania law works is he actually has to now serve extra time because of the violation of the parole. This is how they did the math. And that because of that, which is an extended period of time, then they tack on this sentence from the plea deal. So they, in essence, were able to get what is the equivalent to a life sentence. That's how they cobbled it together. I thought that was fascinating. I thought that that was really fascinating how they did that. It's almost as if like, all right, you're the devil. I'm going to negotiate with you. And I'm hoping that you're not that smart because we got you on the other end on the parole violation. We're going to slap you with the max. We're going to get what we can from the plea deal, but you're never walking out. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what the prosecution did. And I mean, it's great lawyering from the prosecution's end. I'm sure hopefully his lawyer would have told him that that's a possibility. Otherwise, that's a, a violation of the duty to of his defense attorney. But it's definitely great lawyering from the prosecution's angle. I'm sure that the family was uh, advised of the possibility that he would you know, fall for this and, and that they would essentially get what they were looking for him to be punished for the rest of his life, but also to get um, their daughter back and uh, the ability to to bury her properly. So it's brilliant lawyering. Yeah. So he won't be walking out of that prison anytime soon. So there's a little justice there. Yes. Well, Gerald, this next case, I'm, I can't wait to hear your insight on it because it's like it's been happening in your backyard. So we go to Georgia where 23-year-old Brian Anthony Roden, an aspiring rapper, has been charged in connection with a July 3rd murder of three men at Pine Tree Country Club. I remember when this was breaking because it, it made huge headlines because it was, you know, it's like, was there a, was there a, a, a shooter at a golf course? Were, were more people subject and threatened? I mean, there was so much going on at the time. Um, and the thing about this case, Gerald, that we're going to talk about is, and I'm going to say is really police incompetence. I know police don't um, don't want to um, own up to this part, but, but we're going to get to that in a second because they apparently had the shooter in custody on an unrelated traffic charge for three days for three days in a neighboring county's jail and didn't even know it, and they set the alleged shooter murderer free. Now, I just like you, you can't how they even got him back is even more incredible. <laughs> The fact that they let him walk. So anyway, let's let's get into the details of the case. So Brian, who lives in Atlanta, is best known as B-Rod. He was charged with three counts of malice murder, five counts of felony murder, three counts of aggravated assault, two counts of kidnapping with bodily injury, possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony, and tampering with evidence according to the indictments. So a lot of charges here. Brian is currently being held in the Cobb County Jail without bond. Now, he was arrested on July 8th. That is five days after the fatal shootings. He was actually arrested on the night of the shootings for a traffic charge. Apparently, he was stopped by police um, for having all sorts of problems with the fancy Maserati that he was driving. So he gets picked up, spends three days in jail. Meanwhile, the cops in the other county 
are looking for a murderer. Gerald, I can't even believe this. Well, I mean, this case is very disturbing. And I remember as it was happening, it was it was local news and then it was national news and then it was international news because they believed that they had a serial killer on the loose. You know, you had this affluent neighborhood in Cobb County where you had a, a, a golf pro who was murdered uh, on the golf course. And then in the car, you had two additional bodies. And so Atlanta was in a, a flux because, you know, you had essentially a serial killer. And, and so the police were putting out all this information that led people in the wrong direction. Um, I believe the initial report was they were looking for a either a brown complected or slightly darker complected Hispanic male when they first put it out. Uh, Marietta and Cobb County Police put it out. And, and I was curious because I'm like, OK, so what makes you think it was that type of person or a person that looks like that? And, and so as we moved on and found out more details and then they came up with the suspect, I was very concerned and I still am concerned. I want to know what evidence they have that ties this individual to these allegations. And the thing that the defendant has going for him is he has one of the most high profile defense attorneys in the state, Bruce Harvey, who is by all accounts, one of the best, if not the best defense attorney in the state of Georgia. So I'm thoroughly interested in hearing how this case plays out. I know Mr. Uh, you know, Flynn Brody, who's a district attorney, is very competent. We've had a couple cases together. Uh, so it's interesting to see how this case is going to play out. Oh, it's got so many moving parts to it and, and so many missed cues like that and missed opportunities and police work that actually seems shoddy. So I, I really am very curious how this is going to work. I, I agree with you. I think it actually pokes a lot of holes that makes it possible for the suspect in this case to make a stronger argument than usual that maybe you got the wrong person here, or at least they can make a convincing argument. So let's look at some of these details because they're pretty extraordinary. So he is charged, Brian is charged with with binding and, and then gagging two of the victims. And then he drove them in the back of this pickup truck to the country club on July 3rd. So apparently, so so the killers got two dead bodies in the back of the car and then drives onto the golf course, which in of itself, I don't play golf, but I know that that's like, that's a bizarre incident by itself. And then what ends up happening is that the Pine Tree Golf Pro, Gene Siller, 46 years old, he ends up getting shot and killed as well. The belief by authorities is that he was not an intended target, but simply he probably was like, what the heck is this truck doing on, I forget what, the 10th hole, and was shot by uh, the killer who had two bodies in the back. So investigators say that the white pickup truck drove onto that 10th hole around 2 p.m. So that would must have been a pretty busy time. 
They say that Brian was driving the truck with the two dead bodies. Gene was shot in the head, this is the golf pro, on the 10th green. The men were identified as Paul Pearson, 76 years old, of Topeka, Kansas, and Henry Valdez, 46 years old, of Anaheim, California. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports that Henry Valdez, one of the victims, was killed by a single gunshot to the head while Paul Pearson was shot several times in the back, arms, legs, and buttocks. So Paul is listed as being the owner of the pickup truck. Okay, so one of the victims, it's his pickup truck. So all three bodies, like we said, were found on the 10th hole of the golf club. Um, And it was a member of the country club, you know, told the local uh, news station, he he, he was like driving on the range and, and heard that there was a truck. So like everyone's like racing to figure out what's going on. And I don't think anyone at that moment thought that there was anything like serious that would lead to deadly. You could just have like maybe a drunk person who's driving on the 10th hole that shouldn't be doing that. All right. So now again, remember Brian is the one who's charged with this. The police allege that he left the crime scene, hid the handgun. um, And apparently there's an unidentified individual that was used to retrieve where the gun was hidden. Do you find that weird? Is there someone unidentified here in this case, Gerald? I find this all strange. And I think that the biggest thing that we need to remember is that these people um, were killed at some different time. And then the, the last victim, the golf pro, was killed on that day. It's Georgia. It's July. It's hot. You, if you have two bodies in the back of a truck, you're going to know that there are two bodies in the back of the truck. And now you have him driving onto the 10th green. you in a very affluent neighborhood in the middle of the day, uh, right before July 4th. So a lot of people are off. You know everybody's seeing all this stuff. And, and then you have, unfortunately, the golf pro who gets shot on the 10th green while other people are running to come see what happened. And all of a sudden, the alleged killer is able to get away and hide the, the, the weapon while you're all looking for a Hispanic male and not an African-American male. So it's just so many inconsistencies and problems in this case. And, and I'm, I'm still curious, you know, and I know you're going to get into it in a moment, but how do we connect Brian, the aspiring rapper, to all of this? And one thing I have not seen or read in any of the accounts so far, and there have to be, are where's all the surveillance video? You're going to tell me that there are no cameras on this fancy um, country club golf course? None? And that nobody else, right? Or ring cameras. You know, one thing I've learned in the last three or four years of practice, there's always a ring doorbell or some type of surveillance of a camera that's off in a tree or something. When you come into these neighborhoods, they have them in the trees where you can see. And so it just kind of pieces together the entire case. You know, my hope is that in this case, they have all of that because this is a very affluent neighborhood uh, at a country club. I'm sure there has to be surveillance. So again, that's some of the things that you would expect in discovery that they would turn over uh, that connects, you know, Brian to, to this case. 
And the other thing is the motive and whether they all knew each other. So police have not disclosed a motive for the killing or really any information about a possible connection. However, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution spoke with a friend of one of the victims of, of Henry, the one of the men who was killed, and apparently um, they knew each other through the cannabis trade. This is according to the newspaper. And they claim that Henry Valdez ran a marijuana dispensary in Orange County, California, called Hope for Humanity, and that Valdez and the other victim, Paul, you know, whose vehicle it was, the truck, that they'd been friends for a very long time. But again, other than that, and that is a separate report, that is not a police report, I'm still trying to figure out what is the connection? Like, what happened? What went wrong? We don't know that yet. And um, I suppose at some point, prosecutors are going to have to tell us as they move forward on this. So can we get back to the one part of this case that just drives me bonkers because I, I, I can't believe that this actually happened. So I want to talk about how um, on July Third, the day of the shooting, Brian was arrested approximately nine hours after the bodies were found on the golf course. Okay. Now remember, he's arrested, but police are still looking for the shooter. He's arrested not as the shooter, but he is arrested on these traffic violations. He's arrested by Shambly police for driving a black Maserati with temporary tags. Authorities say. Again, they didn't realize that he was a murder suspect. He was then, um, and the charges were several things, all misdemeanors, uh, including a DUI, a headlight violation, using a fake ID, driving without insurance, driving an unregistered vehicle, and using a license plate to conceal the identity of the vehicle. Okay, all uh, uh, that's why they took him in. And he ends up spending three days in the jail. This man is in custody for three days while police in the other jurisdiction are looking for the killer. Gerald, you know where I'm going with this. It's like. Where, where was the ball dropped? I mean, clearly he was either in the Shamley Police Department or he was in the DeKalb County Jail. And for, for your listeners who, or who don't know the um, geography of, of Atlanta, you know, Atlanta sits in between two counties, Fulton and DeKalb, and Cobb County is right across the border of the Chattahoochee River from Fulton County. So he was really less than 15 miles away, maybe 20 miles away from where these brutal and horrific killings happen. And he's in the jail. So that means he's been fingerprinted. And if there is forensic evidence, you can tie it. The crazy part about all this is the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which usually has the crime lab, which does the forensics, is in DeKalb County, not more than seven miles from the detention center. So we can triangulate all of this and really get the evidence, you know, there to hold him in custody if he's actually the shooter. So, again, these are all issues that I'm sure uh, that capable counsel Bruce Harvey will bring up in this investigation. And I'm hopeful that, you know, Cobb County has dotted their I's and, and, and crossed their T's because if they haven't, it's going to be interesting and fireworks in that courtroom. Oh, absolutely. So here's the next part of this that is equally crazy. So he gets released after three days and then they realize 
someone realizes, I don't even know who the they is in this case, someone realizes, ooh, you know what? We really need him back. We want to arrest him. And this is the part I find fascinating. So rather than just going to arrest him on the murder charges, right? The, um, the, the people who run the jail call him and say, oh, you know, when you were arrested, we seized a lot of money. Why don't you come down and get your money back? So he actually goes back to the jail that he had been released from to collect this money. And that's when he gets arrested on the triple murder. Now, Gerald, help me out here. Unless Brian himself is um, also not firing on all cylinders, like clearly the police are in this case. I mean, if you were wanted for murder, would you ever show up? to collect your money, unless, of course, it was so much money that you needed it. Not on a misdemeanor, I wouldn't. And again, these are factors that are going to weigh in his favor at any bond hearing. You're out on a misdemeanor arrest, coming back to get your property from the misdemeanor arrest. You actually have probably heard about this triple homicide because it's very difficult in Atlanta with international attention on this case. It was on the news every single night. For you to come back to the police station to come get your money and not expect that you were going to be arrested for a triple homicide that you know you committed, these are all factors that Mr. Harvey is going to use not only to probably fight the case, but to potentially get his client a bond. So they're going to have to lay out the facts of this case. And the thing about Georgia is you have a right to a preliminary hearing. So once he was arrested, they're going to have to have a committal hearing. It's called a committal hearing, meaning you commit the case over uh, from magistrate court to superior court. We have to lay out the facts and he's going to have his lawyer there. They're going to get to cross examine and go through all of the evidence. And we're going to know what evidence uh, the state has. So there's not going to be any secret. And, and I'm very concerned, especially starting from the first starting point where you look at somebody else to now this important factor that he's not trying to run. He's actually coming back to law enforcement. So we got some questions. Oh, some some very serious questions. And I have to say, I, it was one of the sheriffs, I was looking at one of the news conferences and one of the sheriffs was, you know, telling the, the reporters, it's like, you know, my folks haven't slept, they're exhausted, we're looking for the shooter. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, dude, your alleged shooter that you're looking for, who you say did it, is actually sitting behind bars. So I'm just like, maybe you need to let your officers sleep because clearly they're exhausted and they're missing massive clues, which you all say he did. Now, I have no idea. I have no idea, but I do agree with you, Gerald. There are some major problems with this and law enforcement clearly, if he is, if he is the shooter, then they drop the ball a lot of times. If he is not the shooter, then they still drop the ball a lot of times. I, I've, I haven't seen anything quite like this, honestly. I don't no, recall I seen, anything like this. I haven't seen anything like this in a long time. And again, you know, having practiced law in Georgia for 16 years and been around Mr. Harvey, had cases with Mr. Harvey, um, he is a very conscientious lawyer. And for him to take this case raises even more uh, caution uh, flags in my head that there's something wrong with this case. And I'm interested in seeing um, the, the committal hearing probably after I get off this podcast, I'm probably going to call Bruce and say, I know you can't tell me a whole lot, but 
what do I need to think about when I when I think about this case? Should I go get the warrants and just read the warrants and figure out what Cobb County has? And I'm sure he'll point me in the right direction. But I think that there's going to be some serious problems in this case. Um, you know, my heart goes out to the victims in this case. Uh, but there needs to be a motive and some type of tie in of why you have this individual in custody. And they need to make that available very soon because this case was international. They were giving press conferences. Uh, they were saying all manners of things in the media about, you know, what they believe happened here. And now you have a citizen whose um, rights have been deprived and most of the public does does not know why. So it's time for us to be a little bit more transparent on why he's in custody. And if he's a shooter, um, then present it to a grand jury, get an indictment, put it in front of 12 citizens for trial. And we'll listen to the evidence and see uh, what you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Gerald, what what um, do you think about the fact that he, Brian, does have uh, a criminal background and history in Georgia with law enforcement? I believe in 2016, when he was about 18 years old, he was charged with shooting a student at Georgia State University, where he was also attending in that case, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Although the shooting was described as drug-related, neither student was charged at all. Um, then in January of 2020, Brian was detained by a canine unit at the Atlanta airport. Uh, they said he had $19,000 in cash, which I don't believe is a crime, um, and that they sniffed marijuana in uh, one of his bags. Authorities acting on a tip got him to agree to give up the cash, uh, but he was arrested for assaulting two officers in the process. So there is a, some history here. He's got you know, some level of um, a criminal background. And the attorney who you keep referring to, Bruce Harvey, apparently um, has been his attorney on these other cases as well. So what are we to read into this, if anything? We're to read into this that those were allegations. Let's start with uh, what happened at Georgia State. He wasn't charged. It was not presented to the grand jury by the Fulton County District Attorney, which means that there was not probable cause to continue on in the prosecution of that case. So that case won't come in. The situation at the airport, I don't believe I heard a conviction in that one either. And I've had cases where individuals have had large sums of money at the airport, had the money seized and not charged. And we had to file uh, 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 legal paperwork in Clayton County to get the money back. So, you know, allegations of probably a misdemeanor amount of marijuana and a large amount of cash with no criminal conviction means that, you know, Brian has no record except for the misdemeanor charges uh, that are in Chamley, which is probably why he has Bruce Harvey. Bruce is a very good lawyer. Uh, he's able to fight these cases both in a courtroom and outside of a courtroom. And those particular incidents will not come in. They are not admissible in a Georgia courtroom if they are not convictions. And so, Gerald, we have an update. I, I just found it in the notes because you asked, like, what happened with the airport case. So Brian bonded out on that case, and the case is still pending, according okay. to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Okay. And that was a 2020 case? Yes, sir. January okay. 2020. So it got caught up in the pandemic. So it's probably going to be two years before that one comes up. Again, it's still an allegation. It's not going to come up uh, in the trial of this case. Uh, because it's not a conviction, it's not admissible. Um, but, you know, each case has to stand on its own. And he has to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt for the triple homicides. Now, those are very serious charges. It's very disturbing that anybody would be arrested on that. 
Uh, but again, in our country, um, Justice Thurgood Marshall said the most protected value that we have and that we espouse is the presumption of innocence. And it's uh, according to the state, it's up to the state to prove every essential element of a crime. In this case, they got to prove that Brian killed each and every person that they've alleged. And they have to have substantial uh, evidence that proves beyond a reasonable doubt that he did it. I'm interested to see what the state has. I think we all are. We all are. Thank you for your insight into that case. Anytime. Thank you. All right. It is time for our comment section. And that means Owen Michael is here to tell us what you all are talking about on social media. Hi, Owen. Hi, guys. Good to see you both. Good to hear from you both. We do get comments. We read them all. Stop in, weigh in. Uh, This week, we've got uh, police in Reno, Nevada, investigating the theft of $22,000 in cash and checks stolen from a dental office in an after-hours break-in, identified one of the employees at the office as their suspect. Police say the dentist office employee admitted to detectives that she had previously removed 13 teeth from one person at one time using discarded anesthetic from the office. Daph L. said, extractions are expensive. I'd let her do mine. She probably kind of sort of knew what she was doing, LOL. Uh, That's a lot of faith there from Daph. Pam P. says, I've pulled more than 13, and I'm not a dentist either. It's a heck of an admission there, Pam. Marie S. said, uh, I wouldn't even allow a certified dentist to pull 13 teeth out uh, (laughs) at once, much less an unqualified person. I think uh, reflecting what we're all thinking about that, 13 teeth at once is a lot. Oh, my God. It sounds like, you know, half half your head of teeth have been pulled out, right? Oh, that is so disturbing. As someone who's had, you know, three wisdom teeth taken out at the same time, I'm not allowing anybody to take 13 teeth out. I'm sorry. That's not happening. I, I, yeah, we haven't been able to track down who the uh, person this was performed on was, but uh, I presume there was some sort of discount rate, but uh, we'll keep you updated <laughs> on that one when we know more. Uh, for our next story, we've got another medical-related uh, uh, issue here. We've got Houston paramedics were transporting a patient to a hospital in an ambulance at about 3 in the morning last Friday when a car, in the ambu- uh, a car ran the ambulance off the road. The suspect forced the ambulance driver out at gunpoint, then drove the ambulance away with the patient and a second EMT in the back. Paramedic in the back contacted police. They tracked the ambulance via GPS before the man was arrested. The patient in the back was transferred to another ambulance and was safely hospitalized. Catherine J said, bro, better not have to pay for two ambulance rides. (laughs) They're expensive. Uh, Keon B says, y'all boys been playing too much Grand Theft Auto. LOL. I knew it. I knew it. GTA. That was GTA all day. That's right. It's, uh, it's, it's taken over the culture. Uh, Isabel G says, I just want to know what this guy's end game was, which is a good point there. I'm not sure what strategy was going on there or what, but uh, keep you posted. when we know more on that one. Oh, he my Lord. Dri- did they- he was driving from Vice City to San Andreas. That's what he was doing. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Well, in his mind anyway. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That is so frightening. Can you imagine you're in the back of this? You know, you know, you're not well if you're strapped into an ambulance. So I don't know if I could have handled that stress. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Hopefully hopefully the patient was sedated. They had the the IV in there and they gave him some sedation. So you didn't realize that you had just been carjacked for an ambulance. (laughs) Right. Just going around, going with the flow, literally. Yes. Literally. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my goodness. Thanks, Owen. They were crazy this week. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye.
See you later. Well, that is our episode for this week. Gerald, thank you so much for coming back. It's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, I know you're super busy. I follow you on Instagram. And if you're not in court defending someone, then you're out protesting and working for the rights of all people. So where can people find you and follow you? They can find me on all social platforms at Attorney Griggs, A-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y-G-R-I-G-G-S. Or you can find me at the protest. I'm either in court or I'm at the protest. But follow me on all social platforms to stay informed or just go to the hashtag Justice Fighter. Yeah, I, I always appreciate it because I'm always learning something. And I think I said this on the last podcast, but uh, when you were on, but our producer was trying to reach you one day and she gets you on your cell phone and it's like really loud and you're like, I can't talk now. I'm at a protest. <laughs> and it was just like, you live your life that is on Instagram without question. <laughs> yes, it's actually reality. People say, oh, man, you just taking pictures. No, I'm actually at the protest. I'm in court. And so I'm trying to give you guys the full experience of what justice should look like. And again, it should be justice for every single person. Um, So just thank you for having me on the platform just to give some of my legal knowledge and and insight into the practice, but also the pursuit of justice because, you know, people need more justice and we're going to keep fighting for that. I agree with you there. Thank you so much, Gerald. We'll see you soon. You can always find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. And you can find our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts, of course, on YouTube. And get updates and subscribe to our newsletter, which Owen Michael puts together. And you can do that at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.